0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Y'all gonna have to smile at me. If y'all knew I'm nervous, i nervous, I I need to see some teeth out there. Y'all gotta smile. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to see you. It's good to see you. Uh, before I start, let me, uh, let me open in prayer as well. Dear Lord God, thank you for sovereignly orchestrating events that led me to speaking your truths here today. Thank you for a pastor who trusts me, Lord God, with the sheep that you've given him. It was the joy that i see in him as he preaches lord god that inspired me all week during my study lord god forgive me for my sins as i want nothing between you and i as i attempt to rightly divide your word lord god for your children who have purposed in their hearts to be here lord i pray that all under the sound of my voice ask you for forgiveness of their sins as well lord god we desire that there be no enmity between us as we look to draw near to you through your worship and reading the hearing and the studying of your word, Lord God, move in this place, move in my heart, move in your people this morning, Father God. These things we pray in your son, Jesus name. Amen. All right. Psalms 51, the joy of your salvation. I thought that when we start this message, the first thing we need to do is, is let's define the definition of the word joy, because you're going to hear it over and over and over again throughout this message. And I noticed that there's definitely Two definitions of the word as I looked it up and did a little bit of study on it. There's the world's the world's definition of joy, a sense of well-being and feeling of great happiness that comes from success and good fortune. And when I read that and thought about it, I thought to myself, Greg, that yeah, that's joy can come from that. Right. And as I continue to study, then I realized, man, if that's what your joy is hooked into, there could be some problems along the way. A sense of well-being and feeling of great happiness that comes from success and good fortune, which begs the question, if you don't have success and good fortune, then you might not have your joy. Right. So as I just kept looking at that, Lauren, I was thinking, man, I, I think that's the definition I grew up with. And only recently after I spent time in God's word and looking at it, I realized that can't be that can't be the foundation of my joy. Let's look at a few definitions of biblical joy. Biblical joy is more than a happy feeling. It's a lasting emotion that comes from the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises. Let's work through that for just a second. It's a lasting emotion that comes from the choice. Now, who has to make the choice? We do. It comes from the choice that we make to trust that God will fulfill his promises. Well, What promises are those might God fulfill? Here's a promise. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. These are the words of Jesus. This is a promise. This is our Lord and Savior saying, listen, I've thought about you long before you thought about yourself, long before you knew who you were. And I've gone to prepare a place for you. And in that you can find great joy because this is our Lord and Savior saying, I'm making preparations for your future, your future where you will spend all eternity that you've probably given zero thought to up until the point you come into the realization of what God is communicating here. And he's saying, I've already taken care of that. I've already thought of that for you. Here's another definition a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and inter- eternal spiritual realities. Your joy is not hooked to something fleeting like your success, your riches, and your fame. No, it's derived from eternal spiritual realities. What might those be? I'm piggybacking on the verse we just looked at, that there is a God who loves you and he has prepared a place where he can spend all of eternity with you. How can you think about that and not have true lasting joy? Joy is not the result of favorable circumstances and even occurs when those circumstances are the most painful and severe. And with that, I want to offer you a phrase that I hope you'll be able to hang on to. And that is no matter how dark it gets, no matter how dire your circumstances or your situation is, you have to choose this day. You have to make a decision that you will exercise your joy in the midst of your trials and your circumstances until God changes them or allows you to change them. And if he doesn't do that, And if you are ushered on into glory from the midst of your trials and circumstances, you can show up on the doorstep of heaven with joy in your heart and a smile on your face. Because even though you weren't delivered from it in time, you are now delivered from it in glory. And can we promise ourselves that we'll make that promise? That I will exercise and show my joy. In the midst of my trials until either God changes them or allows me to change them. And if he doesn't, I'll still maintain it. I'll still have my joy. And that's because it's not attached to something temporal. Like success and riches and fame. And God has said weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. That joy that is supposed to be inside of you, you will have to pull from it from t- at times when you feel like you've misplaced it or lost it or don't have it. What we'll be looking at the rest of this message is there's a place where it is. You know where it is, and I'm going to make sure you know where it is, and that's where you go to get it. Because weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Joy is a gift from God, and as such, believers are not to manufacture it. It's not your job to manufacture it, but to delight in the blessing that they already possess. And here's where that blessing comes from. As a believer, you are in the presence of God. His spirit is in you. You are in the presence of God and where God's presence is, there's his power. And where his power is, there's his protection. And where his protection is, there's his provision. With those attributes of God surrounding you, joy comes from that because you know you are not alone and you don't have to do it. You don't have to figure it out. I have no idea how this lovely young couple is going to get to Costa Rica, but let me tell you what I do know. I know that they are basking in the glow and in the presence. Of God. And where God is, I know He has His power, His protection, and His provision. And that is a gift from God. How do I know that it's a gift from God? Because the Bible told me so. <laughs> Jesus loves me. Yes, I love. How do I know that? Man, it's not me, it's the. Bu- May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. And peace. May He give it to you in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's a gift from God. And for those of you who have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, His Spirit was deposited in you. You have His presence, protection, power, provisions. All of you know that you have experienced a little bit of all of that throughout your lifetime. How can it not bring peace, comfort, happiness and what? Joy. Joy. This isn't anything you have to manufacture. This is just something you walk from. So world's definition of joy versus a biblical definition of joy. Let's look at a few men and make it a little more practical bring it down to earth so we can you know sink our teeth into it and and before we do that i want to just remind you again of the world's definition a sense of well being and feeling of great happiness that comes from success and good fortune i mean i feel like i could talk about that all day man what if you never ever have what you consider to be success or the world considers to be success what if you never ever get your hands on what you consider or the world considers to be good fortune does that mean you are not able to Possess joy that would be quite a hopeless situation. There's three men here Robin Williams, Kurt Cobain, Anthony Bourdain. Robin Williams, I believe he was probably an international superstar, right? As a, a comedian, Kurt Cobain, he was really big here in the United States, but I believe he was probably internationally known, possibly globally known. Anthony Bourdain was a very famous chef, had a show where his job as a chef, he spent years right in school to learn how to cook. Food was everything to him. And now he's getting paid to travel the globe and just eat stuff and then tell you about it and talk to other people while he's doing it. I mean, these men had some things in common. They reached the pinnacle of their careers. Might not have been able for them to become more successful or earn more money or acquire more fame. But the question I posed to you, did that equate to joy for them? Because they also had something else in common. All three of them committed suicide. At the peak of their fame. And while I was putting this together, man, my heart went out to these men's families. They had... They were someone's son. They were a brother. They were an uncle. They were a cousin. They were a nephew. They, they had fans. They had employees. They. I mean, they had a lot of people who loved them and were counting on them. And somehow I think they reached a point to where they felt lonely and powerless and helpless. And the conclusion that they came to was to take their own lives without thought for how that would impact their mom and their dad and their kids and anyone else. And what I wondered while I was looking at these pictures was, is there any chance that they had been in the presence of God and felt God's power? So that they'd know whatever it is they were up against, God was strong enough to handle it if they felt protected by god to know that they could be shielded from whatever it is that might be challenging them if they felt his provision and knew that he's the one who gave them the power to get the wealth and the fame and the success that they had i wonder if they had felt that and then same to came to the same conclusion in my My rational brain tells me I don't think that's possible. Yet there's another man we'll be looking at today who had more riches and fame and success than all three of them combined. It's King David from the Bible. We want to look at how he handled his success, his riches and his fame. And how when he found himself in his deepest and darkest moment of despair, His answer was not to commit suicide. It was to draw nearer to God again and have his joy restored. Psalms 51, 12 through 13, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you at his deepest, darkest moment in his life. He ran back to God and said that that joy that came with you saving me, that joy that came with you protecting me and providing for me, that joy that came from your presence, our close and intense fellowship. Please restore that back to me. Give it back to me. I've lost it. I've put space between you and I and don't just give it to me so I can have it. Give it to me. So once I have it again. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then I will go out and about and point people back to you. It's not about me. It's about people. I need it. And then I will teach transgressors your ways. Let's look at a little context. First Samuel chapter 16 and chapter 17. Actually, I would encourage you strongly throughout this week go back and read this it's fascinating some of the things that you say i mean just absolutely fascinating this man's life and we're going to look at a little bit of it before we jump into the scripture but i would encourage you go back and read it i was obviously forced to go back and read it because i was preparing for this sermon but i was just reading and i was shaking my head at points i was crying <laughs> at other points i was actually giggling like by myself like and i looked around oh, nobody's here i, I I laughed at some of it At some of it I was just in shock and in awe. But what I think might happen that happened to me, that might happen to you, is if you go back and read it, you will see yourself in it. Clearly, you will know who you are. (laughs) You will know where you are and you will see the parallels in your life. That's why God provided this handbook for life for us. Our creator who created us provided an instruction manual. Everyone here has bought some sort of digital electronic device lately, and with it comes an instruction manual. Most men in here, you have no idea what that is and where it is. You open the box, you threw that away, you pulled it out and said, "I got it," and went to work trying to hook it up. Good luck, right? For, hopefully, God bless you with a wife who went and got it and threw it back at you. <laughs> said, "We ain't got all day. We want this thing to work." I mean, Do what you got to do. Open it up and read it. Right. But this is our handbook for life. How to live. Imagine someone having a handbook for life and choosing not to read it and striking out on their own, even though their creator, who created them, who knows everything about them, said, I'm going to give you a book that you can use to live a successful life. Imagine us tossing it and not reading it, but go back and read it. Let's look at a couple of bullet points. David's keeping sheep. He's about 15 years of age at this time. He's out in the field doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is pasturing sheep. He's keeping sheep. That's his job. Nothing special. Nothing fancy. He's just a shepherd, all right? And at this time, the nation of Israel had a king. They had chose one named Saul. God said, "You don't need a king. I'll be your king." People said, "No, we want one just like these people around. These godless people around us all have." Human kings, we want a human king. We don't want you to be our leader. God says, fine, I'll give you one. They chose one and he turned out to be a wicked, horrible, disobedient man. So at this point, God says, I'm finished with the the one you chose. I'm going to choose for myself a king for my people. And so he sends his prophet at that time, Samuel, he sends him to Jesse's house, which is David's father. And he says, "Uh, tell Jesse to bring all his boys to you because I'm going to choose the next king. I'm going to choose the next president. So Samuel shows up, says to Jesse, go get all your boys. I'm going to choose the next president, the next king of our nation. Jesse goes out, gets his boys, and Samuel literally goes, this one, God? And God said, nope. This one? This one? Nope. And he finishes, and God said, nope. And Samuel said, well, that's strange. Uh, oh, Jesse, you know, I can't even, like, I read this, on, I don't know how many times. I'm like, this makes no sense to me. I told you I was going to choose one of your sons to be the next king. I asked you to get them all. Are these all your sons? And Jesse said, well, I mean, now put your name in the place of David. Well, I mean, there's David. That's what I did when I read it. I put my, well, there's just Eugene. Who's watching sheep. Nobody's special. There's nothing special about him. He's just. He's almost so insignificant. When you asked me to get all my children, I didn't even think of him. He's in the backfield, you know, doing insignificant things, laboring away in anonymity. He's you want me to go get David? They go get David, bring him to the prophet. Prophet like God, is this the one? And God said, yes. It's that one. Everybody look at me close. It's you. Tim, it's you. You're the one. You're special to God. And God has a plan for your life. It's you. That's mind boggling. Go get all your boys. Well, I left. I forgot. I didn't think you wanted him. And David is anointed king. Just a a, a symbolic public display of saying, listen, you've been set apart. You're going to do something very special for God. So Samuel goes about the task of anointing David king at 15 right there in the field. (laughs) No pomp, no circumstance, no nothing. Just it's you. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers in front of his brothers. (laughs) He said, it's you, not the pretty one, not the tall one, not the talented one, not the gifted one. It's you, Greg. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. See, when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today, the Spirit of God goes in you. It enters in you, right? But that's because after Christ did what he did, after he was crucified, resurrected, he then ascended. But before he left, he said, no, no, no. I'm going to send you guys a helper. I'm leaving and the helper's coming. And trust me, the helper will help you do all that God wants you to do. The helper will mean that you have the presence of God all around you and in you. And with that, you get the other attributes, his power, his protection, and his provision. You'll have everything you need. But at this time, the spirit of the Lord came upon people. But nevertheless, guess what David had? Presence, power, protection. And provision. And I want to encourage you with this. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And once the call was made, he then sent his spirit. And you now have it in you, which means you are fully equipped to do what it is God wants you to do. And the question is, what is it that he wants you to do? And if you're not sure. Our youth over here, I'm talking to you. All you have to do is ask him because you've got his presence within you. Adults, if you're just not sure, if you're at some point in your life where we're at a midlife crisis or we're just not as happy as we used to be, or we're just we don't have that gleam in our eye, that fire in our gut, like the Pisces do, right? Just to hearing them talk about, who want to go to Costa Rica? I do. I want to I go with y'all. And I want to do what y'all doing. God's doing something special with y'all, right? But if you find yourself without it, you go back to God. But know this, you've been equipped to do whatever it is that God is calling you to do. So He's keeping sheep, he's called then he's anointed as king. And I thought this was funny. I actually laughed after I read it, and then I imagined in my mind that people said, "Well, what you still doing standing there, David? Yeah, I know you've been anointed King, but them sheep ain't gonna <laughs> they're not they not going to run themselves. You need to get get what was you doing before he came? Well, I was watching the sheep. We'll get to it, baby. That's, like, that, that's how I read it. Like I read it over and I laughed and I giggled and I thought, that's got to be a nutty thing to think that you're special and to come to the realization that you've been set apart and you're called out to do special things but you're still working at Walmart or Jack a, wherever you are doing whatever you're doing, it's not what you thought you'd be doing. Just keep waiting. Be patient in God's time He's going to get you where he needs you. But he had not lost you. You think God lost David out in the field with the? <laughs> you think everybody said, hey, where's David? I thought David, he knows where you are and he's coming. So now next bullet point, David plays for Saul. Interesting here. That spirit that rushed upon David, right? That was the same spirit that God sent to rush upon Saul when Saul was elected as the king. And Saul was wicked and disobedient. And God took it from him. So now Saul does not have that spirit of God on him. I'm going to say this another 20 times. That means he was without. He didn't feel the what of God. Presence. And without the presence of God, he didn't have the protection. The provision. Saul was in trouble at this point. And instead of the spirit of the Lord resting on him now an evil spirit. He was oppressed by an evil spirit and it gave him fits, caused him all sorts of problems. Now look at this big coincidence. Someone happened to say, I know what you need. You need the beautiful music that a liar. That's what you're seeing there. lyre can make. And I happen to know someone, who can play it like no one else. His name is David. He's the son of Jesse, and he's in a field watching sheep. Look at that huge coincidence. I mean, I know myself. At 15, if someone had come to my house and said, you're gonna be the next president, and then my dad said, hey, can you cut the backyard? I think not. <laughs> the last time you saw a president cutting the yard. I'm on my way to TJ Maxx. I got to give me some suits. Right? I, I got to do my first press conference. Like I'd have been trying to control how this thing happened. God found him, then brought him into the royal court to introduce him to everyone. So no one would later say, well, who's that? No, they pluck him from the field. He comes, plays. When he plays, the evil spirit departs Saul. Saul's able to Go about his business and do what he needs to do. And Saul's so like, all right, man, you're like an aspirin, bro. When I get a headache, I'm calling. All right? So and watch this. I'm done. I feel better. Thank you. Why are you still here, David? <laughs> Don't you have some sheep that you need to be tending to? But what God wanted has taken place. David has been introduced to the court and he's about to see a lot more of them real soon because now we're into in this unique section where David kills a bear, a lion, and then Goliath I, I just, I found this so fascinating. I was looking, let's look at it individually. So the Philistines a warring party, they come to make war against Israel. And, uh, these were some bad guys. Right. So the two opposing parties are faced off in a big field. Israel happens to be up a little bit on a, on a hill and, and the Philistines are down in a valley and they're about to go to war. And David, the future king, is at home still tending sheep. And his dad said, listen, do me a favor. Why not you pack some little Lunchables? Take some take some lunch to your brothers. I want to find out how they're doing. Make sure they're OK. I don't know if they're dead out there on the front line or what, but you got to go out there and check on <laughs> check on these other boys who aren't the future king. <laughs> I, just, I need you to go check go to the like front lines, check on these guys and then come back. And give me a report. After all, they're my boys, too. and I want to know how they're doing. All right. So David gets there and there's this huge man standing in the field, screaming and hollering at the army who's all on the ridge, just screaming and hollering and taunting them. And he finds out this guy's been doing that for 40 days. He's there screaming and hollering, send down your best warrior. There's no reason for all of us to fight and lose a thousand people on each side. Forget that. Send your best warrior down here and I'll fight him. And if we lose... You can take us. We'll be your slaves. But if I win, we are coming for y'all. Let's quit playing games. Just send down your best warrior. Like the studies that I read said this guy was between like seven feet and nine feet. Like he was a, he was a huge man. And no one on the ridge had come down. I, I, I fear that sometimes we like, we read the Bible too fast and move through it too fast. I'd like for you to imagine. I mean, everybody here has probably played in some sort of sport or been in some sort of environment where there's like a little bit of trash talking going on, even if it's fun. Right. With friends before we start playing Monopoly. Right. I'm going to give you a little bit. have not lost since 79. Y'all are in trouble. Blah, blah, blah. You can't sit there. I'm going to be the top hat. You know, just a little. Can you imagine 40 days? Of trash talk. David got there and listened to just a little bit of it and said, couldn't. I, I, like I pictured David going, does anybody see this? David said, "What? What will a man get if he goes down there and takes care of this guy?" And someone said, "Bro, the king's daughter's hand and riches beyond imagination." And David said, "What?" And then something else I saw that I I thought was funny. His brothers got mad at him for just asking the question. Now, I want you to picture this four or five people talking to you at the same time. And it sounds like this. What are you doing here? Why are you even here? You don't even have any weapons. You know, you shouldn't be here. Today's Thursday. You should be out there with the sheep anyway. Does Dad know where you are. Why does that? Just imagine four or five people. Now The Bible literally says, David said, I'm quoting, what have I done now? What does that suggest to you? They've been on his case for a hot minute. Probably right after he was anointed. (laughs) I'm telling y'all, I read this and I was like, this is nuts. The future king of Israel, their younger brother, I bet you they gave him heat. Well, at this point, the brothers are furious. Why are you even here? David's like, look, I'm not even going to talk to you guys anymore. He went right over to the king, who, by the way, he already knew. Cause he had played an instrument for him to soothe his mind and calm his spirit. I'll go do it. King Saul says, no man, you can't. You're a young boy. This guy's been fighting, killing people since, you know, before you were even born. And by the way, if I lose you, who's going to play that? I think that, it doesn't say that in the Bible. I think that was part of it too. If I lose you, who's going to calm my nerves with this instrument? But he says, no, you no, you can't do it. David says, hold on a second. Just wait a minute. Let me tell you a story. While I was watching my father's sheep, a lion came in and took one, had it in its jaws, took off with it. I chased it down, pried the sheep from its jaws and I killed it. A lion. Now, now, wow is the proper response. Like, are you kidding me? But here's why this wasn't a big deal for David. The spirit of the Lord had rushed upon David. And where you have the spirit of the Lord, there's his presence. And there's his power. And protection from lions. He said, also, at another time, a bear came and grabbed one, took it. I had it in its mouth, too. Took it away. It's no big deal. Chased it down. Killed it. That Philistine down there talking smack the one that's screaming at all of us, he will die just like the bear and the lion did because he will not be fighting me. He will be fighting God. Now, what kind of courage does that take? Can't have it without the presence and the power and the protection and the provision of the Lord. And by the way, with all of that resting on you, there's joy in that. There's happiness in that. Don't worry about it. I got it. They were like, all right, well, if you're going to go down and fight him, we need to give you a helmet and a sword. And they tried to put all this on David. It weighed him down. He couldn't see out of the helmet. Make it. I didn't have all that with the bear in the line. Don't worry about it. I got it. The Bible says this young man ran down the ridge toward his Goliath. You have a Goliath in your life right now. It's something that nobody wants to touch. You definitely don't want to touch it. But if you've got God's presence and his power and his protection and his provision. You might want to run right at it. and Get it over with. He runs down there. They have a little trash talking moment. <laughs> Goliath says, I'm going to kill you right here in front of everybody. And then I'm going to let the birds of the air eat, eat off your corpse. Like, I won't allow them to remove your body. We're just going to watch them pick you to nothing. And David said, actually, that's not what's going to happen today. Actually, I'm here to inform you that I'm going to kill you. And we're going to let the birds do all that that you said as well, right? So, okay, enough talk. And then the Bible says David ran toward Goliath. No sword, no shield, no nothing. He just had a sling, not a sling shot. A sling like a little leather pouch with string that come up. You stick the rock in it. You're So I don't know how you do it. Don't ask me how you do it. Somehow you let it go. I don't know what happens, but rocks fly out of it at incredible speed. And yeah, that's all he had. Let me tell you what that reminds me of. Just the thought that any plan with God Is the best plan. That's all he had. He Runs toward Goliath. Throws his rock. Cracks his skull. Goliath falls. David takes Goliath's sword. And cuts his own head off with it. Holds it up. To the army on the ridge. They shout for joy. Philistines are like. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Army comes racing down the the hill. Now, now everyone's found their courage, Lauren. They come racing down the hill, chase the Philistines away. Never underestimate what God can do through you when you exercise your faith. You could encourage someone in your house, your church, your school, your job, or an entire nation. Eugene, me? Yes. You. You. God works through us, and you could do something spectacular, like pick your family up, move them to Costa Rica, start witnessing, bring people to Christ, who 200 years from now, if God tarries and Jesus hadn't come back yet, have built 15 churches in costa rica off of the work that you did in 2023 and then maybe they'd have y'all's picture in each church like this one for these guys none of this would have started it could very well be you but wherever you're at whatever you're doing whatever you're engaged in you need to be able to exercise your joy even if things aren't as well as you'd like them to be, even if the light isn't shining on you brightly right now, even if you're in the depths of your most deepest despair, you still need to exercise your joy until God changes the situation or gives you the ability to change it. And you can do that because if you have his presence, you've got his power and his protection. You're going to be fine. He will provide. So now David is the hero. Everyone's listen it's David's demand put him in charge of the whole military. And David goes out and fights every single battle now for the next several years. That comes our way. Saul's able to use him to fight every single battle. It was obvious to them that the spirit of the Lord had rested upon David. All right, well, then go do what you do. Go get your hands bloody. And that's what he did. So now he's in the joyful service of Saul until it wasn't joyful anymore because Saul without the spirit of God on him resting on his own thoughts and imagination next thing you know it comes upon him to try and kill David because he's jealous the people are singing Saul has killed his thousands but David has killed his tens of thousands the people are in love with David Saul gets jealous he begins to hate on him as the youth would say attempted to kill him in person then when he couldn't do that He sent the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guards, the SEALs, your local high school ROTC, the Boy Scouts, and the Girl Scouts after David to kill him. And David had to run and hide in caves. Life completely upended in the joyful service of Saul until it wasn't joyful anymore. And all David could count on was God's presence, his protection, his provision. It's all he could count on because God protected him during that period of time. And all David knew was this can't be my end because someday I'm supposed to be. The king, but it just doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. I'm unhappy where I am and what I'm doing. You just hang on. God has a glorious, wonderful plan for your life. It's coming. But can you display joy while you wait? Because you're not alone. You're not by yourself. Saul, who now does not have his great warrior with him, Saul now has to go and fight his own battles. He's on the battlefield without God's presence, protection, provision. Right. And uh, they lose a the battle and he's surrounded by the enemy. And during that period of time, it was customary for if the enemy catches uh, your king, they're going to desecrate the body cut your head off, cut your hands off, nail you to a wall. They're going to do something horrific to the body, just as a reminder of who we are and what we did to y'all. Right. Saul surrounded. He knows that his time is coming to an end. And here we are at this topic again. It seemed to make sense to him, Pastor Stan, to kill himself. And I asked the same question here that I did earlier with those three men. I wonder if, in the midst of the presence of God, the power of God, knowing that God can protect him and defeat any enemies, with full knowledge of the provisions of God, did Saul come to the conclusion that, yeah, we'll pass on all that protection, God. Let me just go ahead and kill myself. And it's easier to believe for me that he was a long way from God's presence. And he felt alone. He felt by himself. He felt left out. He felt unimportant. He felt small. He felt insignificant. And he felt unable to protect himself. To fight his own battle. To stand up for himself. And it made sense to him to kill himself. And he did. Time goes by. David is now king. More time goes by. I'm still just working up. To the scripture. Which we are going to look at. And we'll be out of it quickly. But at this point. David now becomes king. Very interesting. Word of God says, starts a chapter and says, at a time when kings were out at battle. What they were trying to communicate was there were still more wars going on. And David, who was a man of war, should have been on the battlefield with his soldiers fighting. But instead, David was on the roof of his palace walking around. And he wasn't where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing. Where was he? When, when, when God found him, He was where he was supposed to be doing what, what are you supposed to be doing? Yeah. But at this point he was not where he was supposed to be and he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. And he's standing on the roof of his palace and he sees Bathsheba bathing in her home, open court type situation, high walls so that if you're on the ground, you can't see her bathing. But if you're up high looking down, you can see her. He saw her. He thought she was beautiful. And then he has the great idea. Go get her. He sends someone to go get her. And then he commits adultery with her. Now at this point, if you have truly read the whole thing, you have to come to a conclusion where you realize, I think David's a little far from the presence of God at this point. And if it can happen to him, it could happen to me. So He sleeps with her, sends her home. She reports back, I am pregnant. No problem. Here's what we'll do. I'll call your husband, who is a soldier in my army. He is out risking his life for me because I sent him to the battlefield. We will call him home, give him a two-week reprieve. He'll come home. Y'all will do what husbands and wives do, and then he will leave again, and he will assume it's his baby. This is David's great idea. Which again tells me, I think he's a little far from God, from his presence. Uriah comes home and has more character and integrity than the king does at this moment. And he literally says, all my other soldiers, my brothers out there are still at war. I don't know why I've gotten a vacation. I didn't ask for a vacation. He basically slept slept out in the garage. He said, I'm not going to enjoy myself with my time off. I'm just waiting to go back to battle so I can stay focused. David finds out. Hold on. This man was home and he did not go and have a relationship with his wife. No. Well, and now he's ready to go back to the field. Great. David says here, I'm going to give you a letter. I want you to give it to your sergeant. Uriah heads back to the battlefield with the letter that he hands to his superior. And the letter says, put Uriah. At the most heated, dangerous point of whatever battle we have going on. Let me say it another way. Give him a suicide mission. Can you imagine being the commander reading this letter going, bro, you carried your death's warrant for three days? You didn't didn't look at this? Okay, we got a lot going on on the eastern front. Probably not going to win that thing. We're being overrun. But I need you to go to the very front of the battle and see if you can turn it around. And he kills. He's killed in battle. David murdered him. He didn't do it with his own hands, but he murdered him. It's interesting. Starts out well, doesn't end too well. And this is where we pick up with Scripture. Anybody see The Matrix? It's one of my favorite movies at the time that it came out. I loved it. It's at this point when we look at the Scripture, This is, this is where we are now. Right? Nathan... New prophet has to go to David and have a conversation with him, right? And it's kind of like this conversation in the movie. That's a character who, in the movie. A lot of parallels. He was kind of like a prophet, and, and he was telling the main character of the movie. What if I told you? I mean, that's what I thought about Jared. when I read it. I was like, this sounds like something Morpheus would say because Nathan had a, a unique story for Dave. What if I told you, um, a story? And 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 in the movie, this guy tells. A very regular, plain Jane, average and ordinary guy. What if I told you there's two worlds? The one you're living in and then for illustration purposes, parallel purposes, like a spiritual plane. There's something else really going on. And you're unaware of this, you're just down here, but we think you're the one. We actually think you could be a guy that if you knew about this, you could come here and save us all. You're actually pretty special. But I'm going to give you a choice. Here's two pills. Take this one. You wake up tomorrow and you can just go back to your humdrum mundane life. Take this one. Your eyes will be fully open and we got work to do. Right. And I thought it was a pivotal line in a movie and it was only 10 minutes in. But it was pivotal because the kid had to make a decision as to who he was going to be and what he was going to chase after. Right. He had to make a decision that was going to change his life. So Nathan, the prophet comes to King David and I picture him saying, hey, what if I told you? Let me tell you a story. There was two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many flocks, lots of flocks, lots, lots and lots and lots of animals. They don't even name it. They just said many flocks, period, right? And then the poor man only had one animal, this little bitty sheep that he had raised since it was a baby, along with his kids who were babies. So, like, he raised the sheep and his kids together. Like, this thing, like, eats out of his hand. Y'all know, the like, little dogs you see people carrying around. Like, this sheep eats out of his hands. It eats off his plate. They love it. It's a family pet. Rich man had a very uh, uh, prominent traveler, a guest that was coming to visit. Rich man went and stole the poor man's lamb. He butchered it. He slaughtered it. He cooked it and he fed it to his guest instead of taking one from his flocks upon flocks upon flocks. Said David, what would you say if you found out that a man did that? And David was enraged. David said, well, let me tell you a little bit of something. I know a little something about, you know, like, like religious stuff. I, I know this, that God said, like, that, like, you take somebody's animal, like, like you do something like, right. That's how I picture David just beside it, Like, 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 if you do that, that you should, that's, you should die. We could kill that person for that. And I don't look at this craziness and I don't want anybody that depraved running around my kingdom. He should die. No, no, before he dies, he should repay for." Four, four, fourfold, like he should replace the, the, the sheep and more. And then we're going to kill him. And Nathan said, you are the man of this story. You got eight wives and an entire kingdom, and you took this man's one wife. Then you sent him away to die. You killed him. You are the man. And I bet you thought nobody knew about that because Uriah didn't know. Bathsheba only knew she was pregnant, but she didn't know you sent him to kill You knew it all. And God knew, and God told me, and you have a problem. David confessed his sins and asked for forgiveness. He knows forgiveness is available, and it's the first step toward restoration. Y'all, we have all sinned. We're going to continue to sin. We are removed from the power of it, but not the temptation of it. You, 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 you may continue to sin, but there's something you can do to fix it. You can get it right. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David knew I can fix this. And when I fix it, I can get in right fellowship and relationship with God. What does that really mean? I can get closer to him. I can make sure that we are in close proximity. I have his presence again. His power and his protection and his provisions and my joy will be restored. It's been about nine or 10 months since he did this. And David knows, man, I haven't been living right. To the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. I love that. According to God is rich in love and mercy. And he's asking God, according to what you have, I'd like some of that. You got a rich father. Do you want him to give you money out of his wealth or according to his wealth? There is a difference. Just think about it. You want to you want to get it? Out of his wealth or according to his wealth? My dad has $10, right? If I get one, that's 10%. If my dad has a billion dollars, that's 100 million, right? That one of them's giving. They're both giving to me out of their wealth. But one's giving to me according to the depths of his pocket. Am I making sense? That's what David is saying here. Have mercy on me. I know you have mercy on top of mercy on top of mercy. Give it to me. I need it all from there because I know who I am. I know where I am right now. I'm without joy. I don't feel your presence. I need it back. I need to be restored according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, write it, scratch through it, erase it. Paper, write, white out. When we come back to look at it later, I don't want to see it. God, and I don't want you to see it. That's how ashamed I am of my sin. Blot it out. And as crazy as that request was, it's been written in the Bible. The most published book of all time. Everybody has seen it. But at this point in time, David saying, I don't I, I, blot it out. Have mercy on me. Not grace. He didn't ask for grace. He asked for mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I woke up yesterday, the day before to the fact that Israel's at war right now and people are dying and mortar shells are falling. And then the house next to you is just blown to shreds and everyone inside of it is killed and nothing happens to your house, that's the grace of God. He ain't do anything to deserve to have your house spared. It's not what David was asking for. He's asking for mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve. Because David knowing a little bit about spiritual things, he knew that the penalty for murder was death. So the same thing that he said should have happened to the guy who stole a the sheep, right, David, at this time, realized it should happen to me. And if there's no one in this land that can kill me, punish me for it, God can. And David was asking for mercy. Men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins, but here's comfort. Our God has multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs of our head, God's mercies are as the stars of the heaven. Spurgeon said that. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash me thoroughly. This is not a temporary outward washing that David was asking for, a temporary one. So I can go run back and do it again, kind of like washing a farm animal like a pig. Like it comes to you, it's all crusted over with mud and all that's dirty and it feels very comfortable in its mud. Right. Then you pressure wash it, you spray it down. Soon as it's squeaky clean, you open the door and it runs and jumps back in the mud. That's not what David was asking for. David was saying, wash me thoroughly. I want this thing deep. I want you to wash the sin out of me. Then I want you to wash it off of me. Cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions. There's an S on that word. David is saying, I know for a fact that I committed adultery. I committed murder. I lied and I tried to cover it up. I know what I did. I'm not hiding from it. I did it. And from this is a good object lesson. When you find yourself here, don't play games. Don't waste time with it. Go to God. Confess what you did. This is to get you in back into right fellowship with God so you can feel his presence again. And with it comes his power and his protection, and his provision. And from that comes your joy. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's close to a year between the time David committed these sins in this confession. He had not escape the weight of his sin and he had lost his joy. Found this interesting quote. The king and the beggar are on the same level when it comes to the torment of our unconfessed sin. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how successful you are. From king to beggar, you sin, you're going to feel the weight of it. And you've got to get that weight off of you. And thank God he allowed and provided a way to do it. David didn't say my punishment is ever before me. What bothered him was his sin. Many grieve over the consequences of sin, but few over the sin itself. I want to encourage you to be hypersensitive to your sin. Don't worry about the consequences. Worry about the sin. As a matter of fact, we don't have to worry about the consequences if we don't sin. But how about we remember this? That sin, unconfessed, puts space between us and God. And you can get to where you don't feel his presence against you. And you only have I sinned. He knew that he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and both their families and um, the kingdom. And his kingship. I mean, he's got a position of power and authority given to him. But he knew he sinned against all that. But in light of his past experiences being in God's presence with his protection and his provision. All of the times that with the power of God, David was able to kill lions and kill Goliath and go out and do war and battle. God protected him in those places. God provided for him by literally giving him the kingdom. Right? David had that in view and he said, you know what, I know I sinned against those guys, but it pales in comparison to the fact that because of who I am and who I definitely know you to be, I can't believe I did what I did. I, I sinned against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may ju- be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know what I did and you are right to punish me and do to me what you do because I know what I did. David realized that God was not absent from the bedroom of adultery when the command to kill your eye was given or, or when the command to kill your eye was given. None but a child of God cares for the eye of God. Gene, how do I know I'm saved? well, one of the things is, are you concerned about God seeing you (laughs) doing what you do? Because if you are, that's a good indication that there's a spirit in you. That's rebelling against what you're trying to do. Right. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, not that there was sin involved in my conception, but. The sin is so deep, the depth of the sin was tied to his sin nature. And David knew he acquired that at conception through one man's sin entered the world. Right. David knew before I was born at at conception, I was sinful. I was wicked. I'm not surprised by what I did. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And David is saying this change that I'm asking for, that I want to come and to happen in my life. I need it to be at bone deep level. I need it to be really, really deep because it's in the inward part where you want truth. You plan to give wisdom so that I can act out of it, but we got to clean it out first. I can't move forward as filthy and as dirty as I am. Purge me with hyssop. Purge. The word here literally means descend me. Literally, it means descend me. David wanted to have his sin completely purged away. Hyssop. Old Testament priests used hyssop. It's a leafy plant and it was used to sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb or water on a person being ceremonially cleaned from defilements. David was saying here, God, I want you to be my priest. I want you to descend me. I want you to dip that hyssop in the blood of the Passover lamb. I want you to sprinkle it on me so that it is obvious to me and everybody else who might be looking that you are saying I'm ceremonially clean at this point. I'm restored. Wash me and I shall be clean. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David knew that God's cleansing was effective. God could make him as if he had never sinned at all. Such is the power of the cleansing work of God upon the heart that he can restore innocence to us and make us as if we had never been stained with transgression at all. There is immense joy in that. Not so much when I have offended my wife. And I ask for forgiveness and she says, yes, I forgive you. But she says it in a way to where I'm not sure that she's forgiven me. There's not a lot of joy in that. And now I scramble around trying to figure out what can I do so I can hear it come from her where she's saying to me, I've wiped away your transgression, Eugene. I've blotted it out of the history books. I won't bring it up to you no anymore. I won't talk about it anymore. You won't talk about it to me anymore. I'm not gonna talk to anybody else about it. We're done. I don't stop until I get that. Sometimes I've gotten it quickly. Sometimes it took a little longer than I would like. But oh, imagine the joy in going to God and God saying done. Well, God hadn't finished explain. Done. Well, I still got these other things I'm trying to work. Done. I can treat you this moment as if you've never done it. I've restored you We're in right fellowship again. You now have my presence and where my presence is. You have my power, my protection and my provision. Let me hear joy and gladness Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David is requesting a great thing. He seeks joy for a sinful heart music for crushed bones that is a preposterous prayer anywhere but at the throne of God Spurgeon says that and he said man can you imagine the, the joy that we should feel out of the fact that we can approach God's throne and we can ask for that creating me a clean heart I don't want you to clean my heart I want you to create a brand new one kind of like you did in Genesis when it says God created that that was out of Nothing. I want you to create a new heart in me. We got to take this old one and we got to get rid of it. I want a new heart. Renew within me a right spirit. That spirit that's in me, yeah, renew it so that I can use that spirit to keep this new heart that you're going to give me clean. David didn't want his heart clean. He wanted a new heart. Same word used again as in Genesis in the beginning. It literally means something out of nothing. God created something or in this case, everything out of nothing. No foundation, no building blocks. He did it from scratch. And David was asking for this type of miracle because God is the only one who can create a new heart out of nothing. But see, you get this when you become a believer. It's put in you a new heart. It's all gone. You've got this spirit that can uphold you at this point in time and help you in your walk. And how do we know that you get a new heart because the Bible tells me so. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I've been saying this all morning now. God, David's saying, I, I, I want to be as close as I can to you. And by the way, please don't take the spirit that you have put upon me that allows me to do these things for you. Don't take it away from me. I saw how desperate it can look when you do. I know what happened to Saul when you took it from him. Don't take it from me. Now, we don't even have to worry about that because once it's in you, it's in you. That's it. And this man was begging. Don't take it. Don't take it. Don't take it. Rejoy to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's use the biblical definition of joy from earlier to bring clarity to what David was asking for. Bring back. This is what David was saying. Bring back what was more than a happy feeling. Return that lasting emotion that comes from the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises. Bring back that happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. Return my sense of well-being I experienced when I knew all was well between me and the Lord. David said, you do that and then. I can't do it now. I'm incapable of doing it now. I'm unable to do it now. I'm unwilling to do it now. It will be ineffective if I do it now. You won't be involved if I do it now, but if you restore to me the joy of your salvation, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you and they can draw near to you and have your presence, power, protection, and provision real joy of God you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy there it is in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore a lot of you might have heard of this story there's a boy that uh, got his hand caught in a very expensive vase now, depending on where you grew up, that is either a vase or a vase. Where I grew up, that's it's just a vase. You pick them up anywhere, right? But this one was a vase. Multiple millions and millions of edges. Priceless. Little boy's got his hand stuck in there. They can't pull it out. People are starting to get worried. Can't get this hand out. Mom's worried who's going to marry her son. If he's walking around with a. Boss on his hand. Dad's worried that thing's insured for 10 million. If I got to break it to get his hand out, <laughs> they're not going to pay for it. People are worried. They're concerned. Dad finally comes to the little boy and says, listen, I need, I, I just need you to do me a favor, man. You got your hand in there. It can obviously come out, right? I, I need you to open your hand. As, like, I need you to, to wiggle your fingers, do everything you can. We're going to put a little palm olive dish soap on there. We open your hand so we can get it out. And the little boy said "Dad, I can't, can't open my hand. Why? Because if I do, I'll drop my penny. So apparently the little boy looked inside the vase. He saw a penny stuck his hand in there, grabbed it. And now he's got a fist balled up so he can't pull his hand out. And his dad dad pleaded with him, son, if you will just open your hand and let that thing that you think is going to give you joy, if you will just let it go, I can deliver you from this vase. Then I can put the vase in your I'll replace it with something more valuable and you can use this to go to college or you can use it to send your kids kids to college or it could change the next five generations of our family. Don't make me break this very valuable thing. Because you won't let go of that worthless thing. And with the message today, what I'm asking you to do is whatever you are holding on to that you think will give you joy. If it's not Christ, if it's not being in the presence of God, where you can rest in his protection and his power and his provision, if it's not that open your hand and let it go, because if you open your hand, God will put his in it. And he will walk the remainder of our life on this side of glory with you. And if he's doing that, you will have his presence, his power, his protection, his provision, and joy. Listen, he made a way to be able to put his hand in yours through the death of his son. And we're going to ask our guest, Jared, missionary to Costa Rica, to come close out our time together with a call to salvation. Jared, if you will.